Welcome to the What's In My Head podcast. I'm your host, Julian, and thanks for checking out the audio format of our show. If you want to watch these episodes, check us out on YouTube. Just type in youtube.com slash what's in my head podcast. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as I bring you a piece of your childhood each and every week. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button here as well as on YouTube. Make sure to check us out on all social media platforms. That's where I'll ask you, the fans, to drop a question or two for our upcoming guests. You can find us on social media by searching at In My Head Pod. If you're digging the content, leave us a rating and review as that helps us and other fans of pop culture find us. Enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to What's in My Head podcast. Today I'm joined by Mr. Craig McCracken, the father of the Powerpuff Girls, Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends, Yonder, and Kid Cosmic. Craig, how are you, sir? I'm very good. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, Julian. Oh, man, it, it, like I said, we talked just a little bit before. We won't delve too, too, deep, too deep into that. But I am super pumped to have you here, man. When I was a little kid, I would jump around Cartoon Network all the time. One of your shows, and I think we talked about it earlier, but one the show in particular, Powerpuff Girls, when I was a kid, I would get beat up for bringing this show up, you know, mm-hmm. to all my friends and stuff like that. Like, yeah, it's yeah. a girl show. And then oh, my yeah. friends started watching it and they're like, holy shit, this is really, really cool. So usually at this point in time in the podcast, I would go like, where'd you start, you know, learning that, uh, man, art might be a thing for me, but we're not going to take it back that far. Right, right, right. Um, when the Powerpuff Girls came up and you started to pitch this idea, Linda Cement, mm-hmm. you told us a little bit about the whole process. You know, they said right. it didn't test very well. Um, right. And she said, if you, if you pulled out the humor that, that you were doing with Dexter's lab at that time and the storyboards, we right. think this might be a thing. Yeah. So take this back just for a second to that point in time, you had just submitted your short or your, your idea, your concept. It didn't test too well. What was that whole atmosphere and that feeling like when you're doing that? Well, yeah, well, when we had, when we were doing Powerpuff with the shorts program or the What a Cartoon shorts program, those uh, shorts, the first four uh, shorts, the first two Dexter shorts and the first two Powerpuff shorts were done by myself, Gendy Tartakovsky and Paul Rouge. And at the time, Cartoon Network was kind of thinking Powerpuff was going to be their first series, yeah. right? And so they um, they did this focus test. And probably like Linda said, I went to this focus test with a bunch of 11-year-old boys. And they literally said, this is the worst cartoon ever made. And whoever made it should be fired. So I felt, all right, my career is done with. Um, I guess it was just too weird. It was too artsy. It was whatever. But Dexter's ended up getting picked up first. So... I was like, all right, I'll work with Gendy. I love working with Gendy. I, I feel like I'm an integral part of Dexter's. And so we'll do, we'll work on this show. So we did that for four seasons. And I just focused on telling clearer stories to kids, you know, trying to connect to them, trying to not be so artsy. And I did tons of storyboards on Dexter's. I art directed that show. And then I wasn't even thinking about Powerpuff becoming a series. I thought that was over with. And I was just like, well, what's the next show I'm going to roll on to as a board artist or as an art director. And then Mike Lazo and Linda Siminski came to me and said, hey, we're going to pick up Powerpuff Girls. We want to greenlight the show. Uh, We love this Dexter's crew. We want to keep this unit together to keep making cartoons for Cartoon Network. And we want to put you in the driver's seat. You know, we love the storyboards you've been doing on, on Dexter's and we feel you're ready to run a show. So it sort of surprised me because I wasn't trying to make that happen. I wasn't seeking that out. So, you know, but that was a long time coming because I don't know if Linda had mentioned it to you, but when I was a student at Cal Arts, I was working on my student film 
called the Whoop-Ass Girls, which was sort of like the precursor to Powerpuff Girls. And while I was working on that film, I was like halfway through with it. One of my teachers from CalArts, uh, her name's Becky, Becky Bristow, she brought me down and said, hey, I want you to meet my friend. Her name's Linda Semensky. She's a development executive at, Net, at Nickelodeon. And I want you to show her your work in progress for the Whoop-Ass Girls. Yeah. So like I had shown it to Linda in like 1992 when I was like 21 years old. And then here it is years later, 1997, and she's now finally picking up this show for Cartoon Network. So she had known about it and about me for a long time, but I was, I don't think I was ready to run my own show at that point. So when I got that opportunity, I was just like, well, I'm not going to screw this up. Like I remembered what happened with that focus group. And I was like, all right, how do I make this show that's going to communicate to kids in, in the clearest way I possibly can? Now, when you get that initial, that testing of that pilot, and they said that, that this guy should lose his job, obviously, yeah. I want to say it's probably the lowest point, point excuse me, point in your career. Um, or was it was it the, probably the lowest point at that time? Well, it was the lowest point, and it was also the beginning of my career. Like, I had been wanting to make cartoons since I was 12 years old. I've been drawing since I was three or four. So yeah. this has been a lifelong dream of mine. And I finally got to make my own professional cartoon. And I literally was just shot down yeah. by the audience I was making it for. Yeah. So yeah, I was just like, what did I do wrong? What, how, how did I mess this up? And what I realized I was doing wrong is I was making that short for myself, mm -hmm. right? I was very artsy. I was very in my own head. And I was like, hey, I got this funny idea about this villain who loses a jam contest. So he turns the world into meat. And I wasn't telling anybody about these three little girls who had superpowers, right? So part of what I think was happening with those kids is they wanted to know who are those superheroes? Why do they have powers? Why are they flying around? What I want to know that. And I wasn't answering those questions for them. So I sort of realized that I had a responsibility, yes, to make shows for myself, but also to communicate to the audience yeah. and tell these kids this story about here's these three little girls and this is how they got their powers. And this is, you know, what they do. And that's why every episode of Powerpuff Girls has that origin story in it. So if you've never seen it, you can jump in and get what it's all about. And then we can tell the you know, episodes of the characters. So I just realized I needed to do a better job of communicating so you know, and not being so artsy it, it when i think about that the first thing i think of is i think of marvel comics the first page of almost every marvel comics it's telling you how daredevil got his eyesight or how it, he lost his eyesight how right, the right. turned into this guy so that's the first thing i think of the second thing i want to know and you could be honest there's only a couple hundred thousand people gonna listen to this right, <laughs> right, so right. when right. they come to you and they say hey we're gonna green light the show did you want to go and fight those kids? Because I would have wanted to go and fight those kids that tell me that, hey, man, this doesn't this isn't good. And that's just me being being sarcastic and, and, and right. trying to get money. But did you feel I don't want to say redemption, but did you like, oh, man, this is this is it. I got this. No, I was relieved. I was like, I am so thankful that I got four seasons on Dexter's Laboratory and learned how to tell stories and learn how to make cartoons, because if I had got a chance to make Powerpuff um, like in what, 94, 95, I don't think it would have turned out yeah. to be the show that it was. So like the fact that we really cut our teeth on how to make these uh, cartoons uh, it, on Dexter's, I felt like, okay, we're ready for this now. I wasn't ready then, 
So I was thankful. I was thankful that I actually had that time to learn how to do that better. And I was like, okay, now we're ready to do this kind of show. But, and I was, I, you know, there wasn't a revenge thing, but it was like, okay, I'm going to make it work now. I'm going to make, I'm going to communicate this to you clearly. And I'm going to, I'm going to pull this off, you know? And I had a, and I was like, I had a responsibility to do it. You know, Um, they, they came to me and said, we're going to green light this show, even though you never pitched it. So we trust you. Mm -hmm. So I had to kind of deliver on, you know, that trust and faith they put in me as a creative person. So that's a, that's a fantastic way to look at it. And you only be in what, probably 20, you said in 92, you were 21. I I was probably 26 or 27 when they picked up Powerpuff. That is a, first off, that's an age where we're not even fully developed, you know, physically and emotionally. So to have that foresight or that wherewithal to sit there and say, you know what, these guys did something by these guys, these little boys that told me this wasn't good. They did something. They communicated to me that I'm not doing X, Y, and Z. So I need to do X, Y, and Z, but I also need to go back and reverse the alphabet and give them more than they thought they could, you know, more than they think. Right. So that, that, that just being 26, 27 years old is a phenomenal way to think about it, man. You're so much further ahead of the crew than almost any other male at that point in time. Right. So it's, you're smart is what I'm getting at, Craig. Um, So you said if, if it would have been for Dexter's lab in those four seasons, what do you think the most important thing that you learned working with Gendy during Dexter that brought that you brought over to Powerpuff Girls? Well, what we had to learn on Dexter's is, you know, we we didn't know, you know, Gendy and I both are really passionate about making cartoons and we love the same kind of cartoons. And we didn't know um, how long this opportunity would last. Right. Yeah. We were, we, you know, because we had worked on Two Stupid Dogs mm-hmm. and Two Stupid Dogs kind of came and went and then. Donovan left Cartoon Network, left Hanna Barbera Cartoon Network, and had to go somewhere else. So we knew, and we even saw what happened with John Kay, mm-hmm. that they will fire creators off their own show. Yeah, networks will do that. So we were like, we have to do everything we can to make these cartoons as best as we as we possibly can. So we just kind of tried to put everything we possibly could into making those Dexter's episodes. Mm-hmm. The other thing, we only had seven minutes. Right. Those are short cartoons where Powerpuff was 11. Dexter's were were uh, seven. And with seven minutes, that's such a short amount of time to tell a story. Mm-hmm. So Gandhi and I realized that dialogue is a time suck. Right. So the more dialogue you put in, it just eats up time. So we're like, how can we tell stories visually? Yeah. What other tools do we have at our disposal to make to make these cartoons? So we could tell it visually. We could use the art direction. We could use the music. Um, we could use all these other tools, uh, the, the movement, the animation, all those tools we could use to help communicate our ideas um, and not really rely on dialogue. Yeah. And we could pack more into a seven minute space. Mm-hmm. So we just kind of used those Dexter shorts as like, let's try to pull that off. Let's see if we can do it. Let's try, you know, all right. We got at first they picked up six half hours, mm-hmm. right? Which were, you know, two Dexters and a, a dial-in for monkey. Yeah. So we had three cartoons per half hour. And we're like, we got to make these the best we possibly can so we can earn another chunk. Yeah. You know, we weren't convinced that they would just keep making it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we got picked up for six, then we got picked up for seven. So each order they would give us was another chance to prove that we knew how to do this and we could deliver a show that Cartoon Network would be proud of and they were happy with. So just by doing that over and over again, 
throughout those four seasons and it kind of experimenting a lot of times with like, let's try to do a whole episode with no dialogue. Let's see what that's like. You know, what does a 22 minute Dexter feel like, you know? So a lot of it was just these kind of experiments of trying to improve and learn how to make cartoons and learn how to kind of pull this off. And, and then we could take a lot of that and bring that to Powerpuff of just, and how to keep things simple. Yeah. You know, so we also learned that the best Dexters were really simple premises, you know, not too complex stories, just basic, basic ideas. So Powerpuff, the way we always broke story was we took something that was relatable to kids. Um, we didn't think about girls. We went gender neutral. We're like, what's something that all kids deal with? Okay. All kids don't want to take baths. All kids don't want to eat their vegetables. All kids are afraid of the dark. Like these are iconic things kids deal with. And then we went, well, how would we deal with that if we had superpowers? So we always started at some place of relatability for kids and then applied, you know, heroics to it, you know, but it was always trying to keep it simple, just basic, basic ideas, you know, so you could then flesh it out with filmmaking and drama and action sequences and stuff like that. But we learned that from, like I said, making sevens on Dexter's. Now it's, it's phenomenal. You bring up dialogue, right? Because I've said it on multiple occasions. Gendy, Nothing against you or any other person I've had on here. Gendy is my favorite animator of all time. Samurai Jack. There is no way in hell I should have ever watched Samurai Jack at 11 years old back when that came out. Because I do not appreciate. There's no way in hell I could have appreciated that show at 11 years old as much as I appreciate it now. Going back and rewatching that for the first time probably in 15 years, right? Mm -hmm. um, I noticed that like, holy shit, dude, just the dialogue, what you just brought up and the lack thereof. And I don't mean that in a slight in any possible way. But you guys forced us to watch and and you know this is back in the day before smartphones or before we had tablets and all the other shit our attention spans are super super low as it is anyway mm-hmm. so you had to physically watch what was going on because most of the time people have something playing in the background they're cleaning they're cooking they're doing something folding the laundry um so it, it's just a to, to dead noise type of thing right but with a show like that and a show like dexter and a show like powerpuff girls they forced you to physically have to watch it right because you don't yeah. know what's going to go on because they're doing close-ups and I, i've said it hundreds of times and i'm pretty sure people are tired of hearing about it but, but gendy was the master of silence right he right. forced you to feel for these characters on a different level right he forced you mm-hmm. to connect with these characters on a different level and a lot of the shows that, that you ended up creating you feel that same vibe right mm-hmm. so what was that what was, I don't want to say what the thought process was, but was that a conscious effort or a conscious thought to, to bring well, that in? But it's also just being a fan of animation. Animation and cartoons are a visual medium and we're visual storytellers. Like a lot of times when I can't watch a lot of modern cartoons that have too much talking, because yeah. at a certain point, it starts to become like Charlie Brown's teachers, right? It's just wah, 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 wah. If nothing's happening on the screen that's telling me the story, I can't follow it. So both Gandhi and I really like visual storytelling. Um, and, you know, I don't know if you'll get Gandhi on here, but one of the reasons uh, Gandhi's really skilled at that is he moved from Russia to the United States to Chicago when he was seven. And when he got here, he didn't speak the language but he could watch cartoons and understand what was happening. So I think that had a major influence on his ability to think visually because, yeah. you know, he watched certain cartoons and they're all talking and he doesn't know what's happening, but then he'd watch Tom and Jerry's and Looney Tunes. And he's like, I can follow this because they're showing me what's happening. So I think that's where he really kind of sharpened those skills. Um, 
But also, like I was saying, you can communicate story better visually quicker. So when we were starting out on Dexter's, there were two films that really had a major impact on the both of us. And that was the Coen brothers, Hudsucker Proxy mm-hmm. and Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness. Yeah. So if you watch Hudsucker Proxy, there's sequences in there that are all visual. Mm-hmm. They're all just visual storytelling, dramatic compositions, um, dramatic camera work, dramatic music. And they'll tell you the story with pictures. There's an entire sequence that I think was directed by Sam Raimi where there's the invention of the hula hoop and the distribution of the hula hoop and then the catching on of the hula hoop. There's not a word of dialogue in it. And I remember again, and I sitting in the theater just going, this is how we make cartoons. This is visual cartoon storytelling. Mm -hmm. And just that film, we saw it multiple times together, just going, this is how what we can apply to Dexter's and every other thing we did. And the same with um, Army of Darkness, you know, there's that sequence when Ash builds the robot glove, mm-hmm. like that was Gendy's Bible when we were on Dexter's, you know, you know, I don't know if you've seen it, but you know, there's the zoom ins on the hammers and there's two hammer beats and yeah. there's a cranking of the, you know, and the other thing that Gendy really likes about that and one of Gendy's greatest skills is he's a really great timing director and he thinks about timing musically. Mm-hmm. He always thinks about it as music and rhythm and timing and pacing. And that's the way old cartoons used to be made. Like classic Tom and Jerry's and Looney Tunes were timed on bar sheets and they were timed for music, yeah. right? And so if you look at something like Looney Tunes or Silly Symphonies, those things were named that because they were visuals put to music. And that sort of got lost when dialogue came in. But Gendy was a big fan of that, of like, keep it musical. So when we would be boarding on Powerpuff or Dexter's or whatever, he would look at a board and go, you need two more shots here for the rhythm. You need a pan here. And it was always just about visual rhythm. And that's just a real skill he has. He's just a fantastic timing director and really understands rhythm and visual storytelling. And we're both fans of that. So that was just what we wanted to do. You know, you know, show it, don't say it is like a mantra of mine. Like, turn the sound off and the pictures should tell you the story. And then the dialogue enhances that. And that's still stuff I apply to this day to stuff I'm doing today. Well, it, it's, it's funny. And we're going to get to kid cosmic here in just a second, because I started watching this. I started watching kid cosmic with my, sh- with my son. Um, and one thing I just can't stand about watching shows with my son is he'll start something with me. And then like most young kids do, they're like, oh shit, I'm gonna go do something else for a little while. And then they'll come back halfway through something. They're like, hey, so what's going on? I'm like, dude, I told you when you walked away that I wasn't gonna pause this. I'm gonna watch this, right? Right, Um, right. But Kid Cosmic specifically, I feel like that's one of those shows that I can just mute. I don't have to listen to anything. And I can Mm -hmm. just said, I can sit here and watch it panel for panel, Mm -hmm. board for board. I can just watch the entire thing without any dialogue. You miss something with the dialogue because you, you miss the, the little humor here and there and yeah. plastics type of stuff. But one of the main things that I absolutely love about Kid Cosmic is the backgrounds. I've yeah. caught myself where I'm not focusing on what's going on in the story, what's what they're saying or anything like that. I'm looking to see what's in the background. I don't know mm-hmm. what that style is considered. It's mm-hmm. fucking beautiful is what I'm getting. Okay. At. I love that style. And there was a few fans questions that came up about your specific style and your influences and what you try to implement and, and put in and take away and add and all that other stuff. 
Is it a conscious effort for you specifically to mix a whole bunch of art styles and see what sticks? Or do you just try to take whatever inspires you and put it in there and then you're happy with it? Well, the, the main thing you start is when you're developing a show, you figure out what is the tone of the show, the tone of the show, what is the feeling you want the audience to have while they're watching it. And the, and the, the tone of the show, you can apply to every single aspect of production. Mm -hmm. So like a show wander over yonder that I did at Disney, that the tone of that show was extremely cartoony. Yeah. So every decision we made from how the characters are designed, how the characters move, the type of music we put, the type of sound effects, it was always to shine a light on cartooniness, yeah. right? broad cartooniness. Whereas Kid Cosmic, Kid Cosmic was about real people, mm -hmm. right? They're not cartoon characters. They don't have, you know, four fingers, three fingers and a thumb. They've got five fingers. They're human beings. They live in our world. Mm -hmm. So it needed to feel real and tactile and the opposite of cartooniness. So if you watch that show, there's no blink sounds, there's no boinks, there's no squash and stretchy sounds. The animation is not super rubbery and stuff. Yeah. And all of that is selling the tone of this is real. So when it comes to the art direction, you're also asking that question, does this support the tone of the show? Mm -hmm. Now, if I had drawn the backgrounds and they were like wacky angles and crazy color shapes, it would not feel like a tactile real world, yeah. right? So Chris Ariotis, our VG layout artist, like try to really make all those backgrounds feel like a real believable place. And when we painted the backgrounds, Mabel Yi, who developed the painting style, was really making it feel like a real world place with real lighting and things like that. And one thing I always try to do with BGs is I feel backgrounds should be felt and not necessarily seen. And there's a lot of detail in those Kid Cosmic backgrounds. There is, yes. And if you were to paint every license plate and every <laughs> picture on the wall and every coffee mug, it would be this visual noise and you would not know what to look at. So what we did is we pulled back, we did monochromatic color palettes, we made things more neutral. So they're like browns and grays and blues and they're more of one palette. And then the backgrounds just, you sort of feel them and if you look at them, they're incredibly detailed, but if you're just sort of watching the show, you just kind of, they're impressionistic, right? Yeah. You get lost in them so you can pay attention to the characters. But it did feel like a tactile place, you know, by adding lighting and things like that. And so it's all, like I said, it's all about tone. And you have to know what that tone is from the minute you start your show. Like, and then that helps you answer every question, you know, of like, oh, does this joke feel right? Now that joke's too cartoony for Kid Cosmic. We should find a more lifelike, realistic joke. You know, don't put that sound effect in that a real person wouldn't have blinks when their eyes blink, right? You know, so that's sort of, and then that just applies to every show. And you just think about like, well, what does this show want to be? And the shows will often tell you what they want to be. Yeah. You know, yeah. Wonder wanted to be cartoony. So you sort of just let it become cartoony, you know? Now, with, with this specifically, just Kid Cosmic for, for, for just a second, I mean, or no, in general, for all of the shows that you've created, you, you've, you've hit on the word tone a couple different times. For you specifically, has that tone shifted from season to season? Does, does the tone shift or an idea shift like, man, we were going this way, but I really feel like it would be a strong, you know, a strong, just as strong or if not stronger, if we went into a different direction as far as tone goes. 
Well, you can vary the tone for each episode. Yeah. And kind of pull back on some of that. But usually the, you set the tone at the beginning of the show uh, of the series. And then what I try to do is for every new series I come up with, I'm like, well, what haven't I done before? Mm-hmm. You know, so like you sort of get a certain show out of your system and then you want to do something different. But, you know, the tone can vary. You know, we did wanders that were very serious and heartfelt and sincere, but it still was cartoony. It yeah. still had the same design aesthetic. You know, it was still, you would just maybe pull back on some of the wackiness a little bit, you know, because like, okay, this is more of a serious idea. We don't want to put wacky sound effects and over animate the thing. So it, that can vary a bit, a little bit from episode to episode, but we've never made a major tonal shift mid season. Okay. You know, yeah, I, I just didn't know because like, like I said, if I, I wake up in the morning, I'm like, you know what? I, the, my favorite part of the day is I get to pick out what socks I get to wear for work. So I'm a, I'm a funky socks kind of guy. It's anything right. from Dragon Ball Z to Charlie Brown to insert anything here. Right. Um, and some days I'll pick out something the night before. And then when I wake up in the morning, I'm just like, you know what? I'm not feeling Charlie Brown today. I'm, I'm, right. I'm feeling, you know, right. or Gosling, you know, so I just didn't know if, if that was the same kind of concept where you feel like, man, I just, I feel like we should do something differently, but thank you for answering that but question. That's, that's what it is. I mean, that's what it is. Even when you're coming up with a show, like after Wander, I had done a cartoony, super broad cartoony mm-hmm. Bugs Bunny esque show, and I didn't want to do it again. I was like, "What haven't I done? Oh, I'd love to do something that's really kind of sincere and heartfelt and serialized and grounded in reality. That's mm-hmm. a fun challenge. So those are the socks I want to put on." Yeah when I'm making that show and I keep them on for the duration of that production and then we're done with that. And like, now what do I want to wear? Right. And it's also, it's just the creative challenge. Like what haven't I done before? What would be fun? Because these shows take about five or six years of your life and you have to be deeply emotionally invested in them and love them and be passionate about them to like, just put all of this labor into it. You can't just be sort of cavalier about it. Like, yeah, I guess this is a show I'll make. So you've got to find that thing that you're just super passionate about. Like, yeah, I'll stay up late nights telling this story with these characters because I love it. Mm -hmm. What is it like? So this the other Craig that uh, that we hear about all the time is uh, Craig Bartlett, creator of uh, Hey Arnold. And they call him Craig, the creator. I think he's only created one show. So I think that name should, you know, default to you, Craig, is what I'm getting at. Craig, the creator, McCracken. Um, What is it like inside your head? And what I mean by that is whenever you're coming up with a new concept, like we talk Powerpuff Girls, we'll talk Fosters, we'll talk Kid Cosmic, we've talked Wandered, you know, what do you see first? Is it strictly just like, what haven't I done yet? Do you have an idea for a character? And you're like, man, I wonder if I could take this character and put him or her into X, Y, or Z, or how does that, that, that creative flow work and start for you? It usually starts with characters, right? It starts with you design a character, you create a character that you like, and you start thinking about their personality. And then you start figuring out what world would they inhabit or things like that, because it's always about characters. Like that's why I love cartoons because I love cartoon characters, Mm -hmm. you know, I love their personalities. And so you always kind of start with that, you know, uh, um, and yeah, that's, but you know, oftentimes it it really is kind of creating that character for me. Um, and then just figuring out what's their world like, what's their personality like, what's funny about them. Mm-hmm. And then you start thinking about like, well, what kinds of characters should be partnered with that character? What kind of characters would challenge that character from a story standpoint? What kinds of characters could create comedy where you get conflict from? Yeah. So like when we were developing Fosters, it was like, 
when we were developing the imaginary friends, it was really, it was really about coming up with a group of friends that had different personalities that could play off each other, both as friends, but also create friction and tension with each other. You know, like each friend, there was something positive about them, but there was something negative about them too. And those negative aspects of their personality could create, yeah. you know, tension within the group. You know, what what's a good dynamic to create, to create a comedic ensemble that can play off each other. So it's not just like drawing a random guy and then drawing another guy and going, these go together. You yeah. sort of have to go like, how, how can I, how can these characters play off each other just as personalities? Yeah. I mean, that makes, that makes sense. I mean, with, with doing shows like this and selling these shows to Cartoon Network or Disney, Nickelodeon, Netflix, you know, whoever you're giving it to, I got to imagine, because when we talked earlier, I told you I'm in the food industry. Yeah. Whenever you put up a dish, you know, for most people in this industry, it, it's full of people that just don't want to be there. They either, you know, can't find a job. So they go into the food industry or they have a passion for this and they want to put up the best plate. Right. So I'm equating cooking for me to animating for you. Right. So when I put up that dish, when you put up that show and you give it to somebody, you're essentially putting your heart, your soul, mm -hmm. your blood, sweat and tears. Hopefully mm -hmm. none of that stuff is going into the dish, but you know right. what I mean? Hopefully you can taste that love. You can taste that appreciation. Yeah. You specifically, I can see the love. I can see the appreciation that you've had for animation now, 50, 60 years, 70 years prior. Mm -hmm. I see all of that. Right. What is it like when you have a show, your baby essentially, and you give it to a network? What is that feeling like? Does it feel, does, does it feel like you're giving a piece of yourself up? When, if I'm selling it to them, you sell know, the show, yeah. Not necessarily because we sort of have something each other wants, yeah. right? I have an idea that they like, but they have all the money, which I need <laughs> to do this. Yeah. And they have a network and they have, you know, international distribution and a marketing department that I have no access to. So it's sort of like this. Well, I, I'll give you this if you'll give me this. Yeah. And then you make that exchange. And then I get to do what I like to do. I get to make the cartoons because that's my favorite part is making the stuff. Yeah. You know, oftentimes people ask me like, oh, what are your favorite episodes? Or, you know, what's your favorite show? And I'm like, when I think of my shows, I don't think of the actual cartoons we made. Like your experience with my work is different than mine. Yeah. Because my experience with the work is where I was working, um, who I was working with, what was happening in my life. So it's more of a personal experience. It's less about the episodes. So what I'm looking for from a network is just like, I want to make this stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm really excited about making it and I have a team that wants to make it too. So let's make this exchange and I get to make the show, you know? So it, I'm kind of used to it yeah. that I don't own my ideas, you know, because it's like, that's how just how the business works yeah right and that's i think that's one thing that gets lost on a lot of people it's a business it is right it's a business and the goal of making these shows for those networks is to make money mm -hmm. so it's like they trust in me they invest their money in the hopes that i'm going to make them a show that people are going to want to watch yes and if more people want to watch that show then they can market that show. They can sell that show. They can even go down to, and I don't think even people think about this. The reason networks want good ratings and have more eyeballs on shows 
is they can charge more money for the commercial breaks, yeah. right? So there's the, you know, two minutes of commercial breaks, that real estate of that 30 seconds, if you're on a show that all the kids in the world are watching, they can jack up that price for that 30 seconds to that toy company, yeah. right? And so then these companies start making their money back. They get a return on their investment. Yes. So, you know, I always say networks aren't patrons of the arts, right? They're not just going to give me money to make a show just because they love my cartoons and then I profit off of it. And they're like, thanks. Now our business is going under because we didn't make enough money. Right. It's, it is, it's, it's, it's not, they're not just giving artists money to make stuff to entertain people. They're giving artists money because they think they will make them money. Yeah. You know? And I learned that a long time ago. And so just having kind of that realistic perception about the industry, I don't, I get why I have to sell them the idea. Yeah. You know, it's, it, I guess it's just a romantic way of looking at it. Like yeah, I, it is. This, this is my baby and I give it to you, but I want it. So like I said, it was just a very interesting way of, of looking at it. Um, and the main thing, the main thing in that situation that I like is, okay, you let me make it the way I want to make it. Don't tell me how to make the show. Like, you know, that's that's where I get really kind of I draw the line where like don't dictate to me how to be creative. I'll be creative. You give me the, the money and the resources and I'll I'll execute. And I'll let find let me know what you're looking for and I'll try to make something for you. But you know, I want to do it the way I want to do it. You know, you brought something up that I think is really important because it's it's everybody wants to. It's going to sound like I'm shitting on your industry. Everybody that's not a creative person, and I don't mean everybody is an absolute. I mean a lot of folks is what I really mean, um, especially when they get to the executive level. Everybody wants to put their name on something that's popular. Everybody wants to sit there and say, oh, I'm the father, or I helped do this, or I helped put this into an episode, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you're getting those type of notes, or not notes in specific, you said uh, a company will tell you, Hey, we want this direction. You said you try to help and try to give them what they want, but you want to stick to what you do. And that's creating this world that we all enjoy being a part of. Right. Right. With that being said, contracts, and I'm not asking money or anything like that, but contracts specifically, is that something that you can write into when you sell a show? Like, Hey, I will listen to what you have to say, but ultimately I want to make sure that we're telling the stories that need to be told here. Or is it a 50, 50? You can't really write in like, I'm not going to get any notes or, you know, full creative control, things like that, because they're not going to give that up. You know, uh, you, you really are sort of at the mercy of the studio you're working with at the time and the people you're working with and what their relationship is with you, you know. And I've just been fortunate over my career that I have a successful track record. So when they hire me, they go, oh, Craig's here. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. So I maybe get a little more freedom to, to do what I'm doing. Um, but it's like, you know, you work in the restaurant industry. Somebody comes into your restaurant. They order something. Yeah. You make it because that's what they ordered. But you make it. Yeah. They don't come in the kitchen and start adding stuff into it. It's like, get out of here. Let You'd me be surprised. Make- Some people have tried. Right. But that's, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's where it can get bad in the industry. Like here, let me help. And it's like, no, I'll bring it to you and I'll make, but you can order what you want. Yeah. Tell me what you want. And if you don't, if you have like an allergy and you don't want something in there or whatever. Yeah. I won't put that in there. You can, you can make requests. That's yeah. fine. Um, and that's just creating a good working relationship with, you know, your executives, because they are sort of your partners in this. They're not the enemies. 
you know, and you just kind of kind of find that ground, middle ground where you can work together, you know, and trust. It really is just about creative trust. Yeah, you know? it really is. It made it sound like I was shitting on executive. I was just using no. that example. Well, you know? I remember, I remember when I first pitched Fosters to you know Cartoon Network proper. There was somebody in the room who said, "I don't know this. This show sounds really sad." They've all been abandoned by their owners and they're looking for new homes. It reminds me of Island of Misfit Toys. And Mike Lazo just went, this is Craig. He's not going to do that. You know, you've watched his shows. We know what he's going to give us. He's not going to make this sad show about upset imaginary friends who've yeah. lost their owners. Like, like, yeah, you could kind of conceptually think that it might go that direction. But if you know me, he just kind of shut down that note immediately going, Craig's not going to do that. Yeah. You know, and then it never became a note ever again, you know, because, you know, it was just like, and I did, I never did. It was never that show. That, that show was so beautiful. I loved every second of that show. That was one, it, it got towards the end. I don't want to say the end of my cartoon watching days, but it was definitely middle school esque, you know, high school. Um, where I was still that kid that watched cartoons. I mean, I, I still watch cartoons now. Very rarely will I watch something new unless it's somebody that's from you, Gendy, you know, somebody that I grew up with or somebody that said, hey, you really got to check this out. And then I was like, okay, they get the nod, so I'm going to go out. Because time is precious these days. There's so much stuff on TV, just in general. You, you can't go anywhere without some somebody starting a new streaming service, somebody saying, I've got the entire collection of this. So it's very difficult to watch anything these days because there's mm -hmm. just so much shit out there. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, but specifically with Foster's, man, uh, I loved this show. It was so beautiful. Okay. The art style, the colors, like everything just popped. It, it made it feel like even though I knew it was cartoony. Right. And Kid Cosmic said more in a realistic world where you said, Wander was was um, a very cartoony, very very silly type of show, right? Yeah, yeah. Disney. There's something about it that meets kind of in the middle for me. Yeah. I, mean, I don't I don't want to talk out of turn, but like when I watch and I look at the backgrounds on, and I, it just seems like I keep bringing up backgrounds. But when I look at the backgrounds of, of Fosters, I get a very UPA esque vibe yeah. to it, just with the colors, the the, mm -hmm. the landscape of it all. What was the thought process of bringing Fosters? You don't have to talk about the origin story of Fosters, but bringing in the art style or the art style you chose specifically for Fosters. Well, I wanted the show. I'm a big fan of psychedelia, right? And I like just that kind of visual language of psychedelic stuff. And I wanted to make kind of a trippy psychedelic show. And I just thought like, well, I've got these crazy creatures. Mm -hmm. What's a nice visual that they're going to look really cool against? And I'm like, oh, this ornate Victorian mansion seems like a kind of a magical otherworldly place, yeah. right? It doesn't look like any house that's on your normal street. So just looking at it as the house, you're like, there's something special going on there. Yeah. And so it was just a, it was just kind of a neat art style to juxtapose with these surreal kind of creatures. You know, the, also those Victorian mansions are huge and they've got lots of rooms and, and we kind of always saw the mansion is like, a little bit like the Winchester Mystery House. I don't know if you know about that, which is like no. the, 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 I, I, the, the people who own the, who started the Winchester Rifle Company, I think they believed their house was haunted and they needed to keep constructing it. So they would build hallways to nowhere and doors that opened onto brick walls. And it's, there's a whole story about it. So we were just like, oh, let's, it's, yeah, it's called the Winchester Mystery House. So we were like, let's make Fosters like that. So 
it's in a kind of imaginative, surreal, psychedelic environment. And I was like, that's just going to be cool to look at. Yeah. You know, that's like a cool visual style. And yeah, definitely UPA was a huge influence on that show and just kind of, I always wanted to do things where like if a kid's clicking around a channel, I want to make shows where they go, wait, what, what's yeah. that? Something to make them just stop for a second and watch. So that's always kind of like what I was doing. And that just, I thought that would just look cool. Yeah. You know? it, it, it's funny you bring up psychedelic because I was, I was smoking a joint a couple of days ago and I was just flipping through YouTube and looking, well, not flipping through, scrolling through YouTube and I'm outside cause I smoke out front. I go outside and watch the bats, listen to the owls and shit like that. And uh, I was like, you know what? I haven't watched an episode of Foster's in quite some time. And I was like, Craig's coming on. So I was like, I need to make sure I'm on, on my shit. Right. I don't want to make sure I embarrass myself and embarrass Craig and stuff. So I got to make sure I know something about something. So I'm out there watching it. And the first thing I thought of when, cause you brought up that the Victorian style house was like, Holy shit, man. Not only was this yes psychedelic and I was accepting a little bit more because the weed was kicking in, but I was like, holy shit, dude, if anybody from Marvel could cross over, it'd be Dr. Strange. I, said, I don't know why it was about that vibe, but I got this vibe where I was like, you could literally plop out Stephen Strange, pop him into Foster's yeah. home, imaginary friends. And then you could have it work. I thought it was the craziest thing in the world. Um, oh. Was comics a real big influence as far as anything goes for it? Cause we had some, we had some stuff on your style and, um, some anime-esque style shows coming up a little bit later. But yeah. were comics real big for you growing up? Yeah, definitely comics. But I was really, really into comic strips, like classic newspaper comic strips from like ECCR who did Popeye and uh, Calvin and Hobbes and Peanuts and Crazy Cat. Um, I loved classic comic strips growing up. And I would... You know, and I read a lot of comic books too, but I was kind of a, a little bit of an art snob. So I would go to the comic shop every week and I would like look through issues. And if I didn't like the drawing style, I wouldn't read it. Yeah. So I was always kind of gravitated towards the weirder drawing styles. Like one of my favorite comics growing up was Flaming Carrot Comics by Bob Burden, <laughs> which is just this surreal superhero. It's yeah. amazing. It's just this weird superhero. And it's this guy who right. literally wears, he wears a carrot mask. The top of it is on fire. He wears, you know, swimming flip flops and rides a pogo stick. And he's kind of like a little bit out of his mind. And it was just weird. It was just, yeah. you know, first surrealistic superhero. So, you know, and I was a big fan of um, the Rocketeer. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, you know, I like Batman comics a lot. But even when I was a kid, I would go find Batman comics, even though I bought, you know, Dark Knight and Year One and all that. I was gravitating towards like the mid 50s Batman 80 page giant yeah. where there's like, you know, Batman and his son where they were just weirder stories. They were just sillier. You know, I kind of always liked that kind of more fun cartooniness in, in comics and stuff. But yeah, so comics have been big, but like I can honestly say I didn't really grow up reading x-men or all the marvel comics I, like i i always kind of gravitated towards the weirder more underground stuff you know as a kid do you read anything now i know you're busy as shit with everything you're doing but do you read anything now comics wise no i just and yeah I just... if i could make and i've actually got it here because i i uh had rachel luckett on not too long ago which is one of the writers for the edit and eddie crew um if i could tell you to check out any book man this is a phenomenal book it's called Chew by Jonathan Lehman. It's an image book. Okay. And this detective, uh, he, I can't remember the name of the, um, not the disease, but the, the thingy he has 
or what makes him uh, makes him special, right? So what he does is he tastes stuff and he can tell where it was, where it was like, so say it's a hamburger, right? He can tell where that cow came from. He can tell if somebody cuts themselves and they bleed into it when they're grinding the meat, they can tell like, holy shit, the guy that was grinding this up killed somebody two states over, right? So he's, he's got this weird super, right, right. Power, super normal, uh, super paranormal shit. Um, and this isn't a time where chicken is illegal, right? So you can't have chicken. And the only thing that he can eat, I believe, is beets and not have those flashbacks of, oh, this chef killed somebody. So we have to go oh, right, and find right. that. Now he's a detective, too. Right, uh, it's right. a phenomenal book, man. I always, I always oh, put that one there. Um, but getting back to you, uh, with Kid Cosmic, mm -hmm. we talked briefly about it and we, we jumped around. And I know we're jumping around here a That's little right. bit, but I want to make sure we get a little bit for each of the fan base right. that, that wrote in. Um, but Kid Cosmic, right? So season two comes out, what? 10 days? September 7th. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And we're getting real, real close, man. Um, so let's take it back to season one, though. Do you remember where you were at when you had the idea for Kid Cosmic? Do you remember how that came about? Um, I came up with the initial idea for Kid Cosmic around 2009. Mm -hmm. I, had just, right. I, I had come up with this idea of this kind of odd kid who lived in this desert community. And I had originally developed it as a comic strip. And he was just this odd kid who lived in this desert community and he would kind of just drive the local truckers and whatever nuts because there was no yeah. other kids in town. And yeah. in one of the comic strips, he had found a piece of scrap metal in the middle of the desert and went, yeah, I think this is part of an alien spacecraft and yeah. I'm destined to save the world. Right. And then, you know, he kind of believed this, you know, he's just this kid with this active imagination. But the more I started thinking about that story, I was like, oh, I can't make 11 minute cartoons out of this, yeah. right? Because at the time, the way cartoons were designed is they had to be able to be shuffled in any order. So you'd make an 11 minute cartoon, you do a season of cartoons and then Cartoon Network would take them and play a season two episode next to a season four episode next to, you know, and there was no continuity because they just needed to shuffle them around. And I was like, well, this story needs to grow. So this character needs to learn and grow and change over time and no networks were picking up that type of a show ever like they just didn't want those types of things so i just put it in a drawer for years and then when i was working at disney i started to see like shows like gravity falls were getting to do serialization steven universe was doing it a bit adventure time was doing it a bit and networks were open to that idea so i started kind of developing kid cosmic it was originally called the kid from planet earth mm -hmm. i started developing that as a serialized show and was going to pitch it as like a limited series as like you know and it's it's episodic right it tells one big story but i kind of had to wait for the industry to come around to being open to doing that yeah you know because you just had to make these random 11 minutes you know and on that subject a lot of people will write me and tell me how frustrated they are about Foster's that Blue never learned his lesson. So he was always a jerk. He was always a jerk and he didn't learn anything. And I'm like, he couldn't learn anything. He had to like, we had to hit the reset button every episode. So even if he learned within the context of an 11 minutes or rather 22 minutes, at the end of that, the next episode, he had to be kind of selfish again, you know, because yeah. hey, we're going to shuffle them. I wish he could have learned, but yeah, Kid Cosmic started as a very early idea that I just said I had to kind of wait for the industry to catch up to doing that kind of a thing. It, like I said, I, I'm going back and rewatching it again. I 
love this cartoon and my kids hooked on right. it. Now. The nice. first time we sat down and watched it, he just kept getting up. And I was like, look, man, either you sit down with me and you watch it or right. you don't. But I can't keep pausing and telling you what happened because you're walking over there. So finally right. now he's sitting down watching. He's just, like I said, 11 year old, he does karate. So he's just always yeah. fucking moving. He just doesn't sit right. down. Right. Right. He'll understand as he gets older, like, hey, man, you just got to sit and relax. You got to sit here and yeah. enjoy the couch while you can. Right. So the whole thing's only three hours and 20 minutes long. It's season one. It's like, that's it. It's like you can just sit down and watch it. And well, this kid just burns through shows left and right. So I was like, how can you like when we because it was during last year it was during COVID. So we were in the house a lot. Um, you know, I think last year was COVID or still in COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I, like I said, these years just. Oh, yeah fucking wild man but uh nonetheless man um kid cosmic so i'm not going to ask you any spoilers right but i would like to know is there anything you can tease the fans with as far as what can we expect for season two well what we did with season two um season kid cosmic season one two and three are sort of like they're not one big story they're three separate stories but they connect and each one deals with the theme of what it really means to be a hero yeah so season one was about heroes help and season two, the theme of season two is heroes care. And season three will be hero sacrifice. But what we did with um, season two, we kind of went, well, with season one, kid went through his arc. He learned yeah. that being a hero wasn't about showing off and being, you know, standing there and getting the medal. And get, it was about, about helping people, yeah. right? It's not about posturing um, as a hero. So we're like, well, he learned that already. He doesn't need to learn another lesson in season two. So we're like, what character has the bigger lesson to learn? Mm -hmm. So we said, let's make season two about Joe. Yeah. Um, she has the bigger challenge in front of her. She is now the leader of this superhero team and she has to go into space and save the galaxy. And she, you know, she's this teenage girl. So I'm like, her story is more interesting. Mm -hmm. So we're like, all right, let's tell Joe's story for season two and kids in it and he's a driving part of it but he's not the character that has the arc he's not the character that has the lesson Joe is and then so with season three we're like well Joe learned her had her arc in season two what character we want to focus on in season three so we're telling a Papa G story for season three and that was just really great because then you were you were telling different types of stories with characters at different maturity levels Mm -hmm. And so the tone sort of changes a little bit, um, but you know, all the characters are there, but then you're just not repeating yourself. You're not, you're not like, oh, we're kids going to another, learn another great lesson about being a hero again. Like that's not realistic, right? Like how many big events do people have in their lives that are life-changing? Like that was, let, let another character have it. Let another character carry the weight of this show. Yeah. You got to have growth. You got to have development. Yeah. You don't want growth and development. Like I, like, I'll show you my, my shelf back here, right? So all my comics are, I'm a huge Swamp Thing fan, by the way. I know we've been crazy and weird and all that other shit. Swamp Thing's my guy. But I like seeing a character grow, but a character can only grow so much because you start getting into that repetitive mode. Like, ah, I've seen this shit before. Right. He's right. going to sit here. He's going to say some shit. They're going to say, hey, you can't say that. Then he's going to say, oh, shit, I shouldn't have said that. This is what I should do. And then next episode, this one's right. over and then you get in the same thing. So yeah, I get it. You got to have all these different characters. Everybody wants to see the pro. Um, and like I said, the, the, it is a fun, 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 fun show. Mm -hmm. um, 
when you sit back and you think about Kid Cosmic, are you done after three? I mean, obviously we've only talked about three, but how far do you yeah, think? That, that, was, that was the plan. That was the initial order from Netflix is, you know, let's do three seasons and, and be done with it. And let's tell this story. And, you know, so it has a you know beginning, middle and end. And it has a really, the end of season three has a nice ending that ties yeah. together with the whole thing. So yeah, it was like, I feel that that story's been told, you know, um, and I don't feel like, oh, there's another season I need to tell and I'm not getting it. It was like, I'm really satisfied uh, with, you know, how we've told that story. And one thing I can say, just so people know, um, in season two, we did eight episodes. And in season three, we did six episodes. And I don't want people going, hey, what happened, Netflix? You gypped us out of, you know, season one was 10 episodes. The reason we did that is we, you know, we break the story as like one giant thing. And then we divide it into chapters of like, okay, that's an episode, that's an episode, that's an episode. And we looked, when we looked at season, the big story of season two and big story of season three, we realized it divided better in less episodes, yeah. right? So you're not getting less story. It was just, oh, it's better to tell this in eight and it's better to tell season three in six than it is to do three seasons of 10 and literally make stalling filler episodes where you're just kind of, yeah. waiting for the story to get going like i didn't want to do that i didn't want to like overstay our welcome you know that can sometimes happen in serialized shows you know i don't know if you watched lost but it got to a yes. point where like finish the story please and so like it's been a i didn't want to do that i just wanted to make every episode essential and like i said not overstay our welcome so i don't want fans feeling like netflix gypped them out of out of, out of episodes like no you, you didn't this is the way we designed it. Always want them leaving more. And I think this is the first yeah. time in at least 10 years that Lost has been relevant. So there's that. I really enjoyed Lost. I thought it was a fun oh, show. Yeah, yeah. It Me definitely too. got to that point where you're halfway through. And you're like, oh, they could have ended this shit like two seasons ago. What's going on? And then you get to the right. ending. You're like, they're all in purgatory. I was like, well, I kind of guess I already knew that. But right. this is what you want. a long road to get there, long. right? It was, yeah. yeah. It, was definitely, it was definitely a long road to get to. But... As we transition, is there anything else you'd like to say about Kid Cosmo before we jump into the fans' questions? Uh, no, other than click on it. You know, a lot of kids don't know about it. Like, you know, uh, the the more kids that click on it, the, the you know, the more Netflix knows you're 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 watching it. So, you know, if you're curious about it, go to Netflix and you know, click that artwork. You know, because there's a lot of stuff on Netflix to choose from, right? So it's hard when you're just looking at an image what that show is. And, you know, it's not what you think it is. Like, I think a lot of people might look at the artwork and go, oh, it's another kid's superhero show. Yeah. And I'm like, no, it's not it's necessarily. Different. It's a different thing. Yes. You know, Jorge Gutierrez told me, he said, Kid Cosmic is uh, dissecting the myth of it and what's bad about it. And I'm like, yeah. yeah, that's pretty good. That's that's kind of what we're doing. So it's don't let the, you know, the the cover art, you know, don't judge it by the cover. Like, give it a chance. It's a different thing and it feels it feels really good. I'm really proud of it. And you should be, man. Like I said, it is, I've only seen the first season. I can't wait for season two, man. It is fun. Like I said, I've brought up the backgrounds three or four times. I'm sorry, but it is a beautiful. And the music is incredible. It is. Yeah. And we've got a bunch Andy of Bean's music right. is, that's a whole other character in that show. And so. And this I'm is the first time he's actually been brought up about in a podcast so far, but Jorge Gutierrez, yeah. uh, that man's work, the book of life. You got the book of life. For me and then you've got coco nobody talks about the book of life everybody talks about coco because it was disney book yeah. of life 
I'm throwing a free plug out there, Jorge. Go oh, watch sure. it. Like it is beautiful. Oh, that man is a that man is another national treasure. Um, September seventh. Make sure you check out Kid Cosmic season two. Um, mm-hmm. So my favorite part sometimes of the uh, of the interviews are always when the fans get to write in. Sure. Um, now we have one. I wanted to ask this one. The uh, the first one to ask. We've got Frankie underscore webcomic. He's uh, his real name is John Hazard, and he he's a professor at the Cuber Art School. Oh, okay. And he wanted to know what's the most important piece of advice you would give uh, my storyboarding students this year at the Cuber School. Uh, tell stories visually. Okay. Like learn how to tell stories without words. You know, show it, don't say it. Like that. Like we talked about earlier. That's the essence of storyboarding yeah. to me is telling pictures with stories, mm-hmm. you know, and trying to communicate through visuals, you know. That's a great thing to say. Um, Peach Creek wants to know, when you initially pitch a show to executives, what do you present in the pitch? Is the show Bible finalized? Is it just a rough outline? Are there animation character designs finalized? Not usually. I always try to, if I can, show them something that gives them a, a feeling of what the show is about. Like I was fortunate when I pitched Powerpuff Girls that I had a student film so I could hit play on something. Yeah. Because a lot of times when you're pitching an idea to someone, you're at the mercy of their ability to imagine what you're telling them. Yes. So they may be saying no to the show they're making in their own head, not what you intend to make. Mm-hmm. So if there's a way that you can have something to hit to show them. So... Like when I pitch kid or when I pitch Powerpuff, I had my student film and I was able to play that. So you got a vibe for it. When yeah. I pitch Fosters, I filled a room with drawings of imaginary friends doing stuff, little vignettes of little jokes of them, you know, doing stuff. I put up images of Victorian mansions and I just let the executives walk in and look around, just look at the art, read the comics, look at the, get a feel for these characters and how they're living. Um, and then I pitched them the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, with Wander, I had done like I, I had a graphic novel for Wander Over Yonder that I never finished, but I had like 60 pages done. Yeah. So I handed that to Disney and went, read this. Mm-hmm. This is sort of the vibe of the characters. And fortunately, with Kid Cosmic, I had an animatic for the pilot episode. Yeah. So I literally could just go, here's what I intend to make. Now, I know that's not easy to do, but if you can have some example mm-hmm. for what the show is, um, that would be really helpful. The other thing is don't get bogged down in your episode ideas and kind of the internal workings. There's a thing we always say, uh, what are the seven words? You know, seven words to describe your concept. They call it the elevator pitch. If you can just kind of, who are your characters? What's the basic concept? And if you can distill your idea down to that essence, then you're going to engage someone and they'll want to talk more about it you know so like the seven words for fosters was a foster home for imaginary friends and you're like oh okay that that's an interesting idea let's talk further because they're not going to get in you know when you're pitching an idea to executives they're not going to care what episode 17 is yeah right they're not going to they don't care about that they want to know the broad strokes mm-hmm. what's the big concept beautiful yeah um, <clears throat> Mr. Edwin Shy wants to know, aside from the origin story of the Powerpuff Girls, was there any other ideas you had for the movie while in development? 
Yeah, I I originally didn't want to do an origin story because I didn't think it was that interesting to people. And I wanted to do like a crazy, what we ended up doing for the 10-year anniversary special, which was all the villains all at once, crazy chaos, almost like the, you know, the Adam West 66 Batman movie where here's all the villains and they've got to get all of them at once. And there's, you know, that was my original uh, idea for the, the Powerpuff movie. But then I had kind of gotten a lot of other people are going, well, what would your take on an origin story be? So we actually submitted two different versions of the movie. Here's an origin story movie. And here's like all the villain, crazy, you know, chaos, wacky movie. Yeah. And they, Cartoon Network said like, is there a way to combine them? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, if it's an origin, we don't really have, they haven't really met all their villains yet. And then we came up with the idea with Mojo and the army of monkeys. And I'm like, okay, well, that's sort of doing that same thing. It's like, lots of villains so it sort of was a hybrid version you know the, the movie that we produced was a sort of a combination of the two ideas i can't believe we've been this long and i have not brought up mojo jojo he was one of right. my favorite him and fuzzy is my oh, favorite yes. villain from those the, yeah, the, me too. um i i like fuzzy because he sound he sound <laughs> he sounded like everybody i grew up with because i'm from the south so everybody mm-hmm. sounded like fuzzy so right, it, right. like home <laughs> right, um right. cumberland i think it's ch my handwriting sucks I'm sorry. So Cumberland, CH or OH. Uh, what was the inspiration for Kid Cosmic's animation style? Um, it really came from our animatics. Um, when we were doing our animatics, um, we would we would pose them out, but we wouldn't fully in between them. Mm-hmm. And we felt like they were working, right? You know, they 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 you know it was a little poppy, it wasn't smoothed out, and it was like it's really working really well in this sort of just basic animatic stage let's not add too much to it um and our animation director on the show justin nichols like really wanted to stress the idea of like not adding too much extra business to it so we looked he like put a whole reference reel of different type of animation some of it was anime stuff he was looking at um he he was a big fan of the animation the the blue sky i think blue sky did the peanuts movie where stuff was a little poppier um and it, the reason we did that is because we, like I said earlier, is we wanted it to feel a little more real, realistic, right? We didn't want a lot of extra movement distracting from, you know, just telling the story. So yeah. like if Joe turns her head, there's not all this follow through on her bun on her head. Because mm-hmm. oftentimes things can get over animated where there's just too much moving and it's distracting. It's almost just like visual noise. So we just said like, well, let's just pull back and put stuff on threes, put stuff on fours. It works in the animatic. Why do we need to add more to it? You know? So that was sort of why we did it. It was just like, let's just kind of keep it simpler. Yeah. And it just, I love the way it feels. I really, really like it. There's some of it. It sort of reminds me of some early seventies anime, Mm -hmm. you know, like things like speed racer and stuff. I'm like, it's, Oh yes. Yeah. That's so, man, I, I feel like this is the, 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 the podcast for throwbacks, man, because <laughs> we bring up lost, but we brought up speed racer every morning. I would get up around five, five 30. And then generally speed racer was on. And this is before edit and Eddie and everything like that. Um, because that was generally the first show they would play at six o'clock in the morning when I would get up would be edit and Eddie. Um, and if you want to hear the bird story, just go back and watch any edit and Ed, Ed and Eddie podcast I've done so far because I've told that bird story multiple times. But Speed Racer was generally the first cartoon, that one or Cased Clothes. And until you said that, I didn't, 
I didn't put those two together. So I'm like, fuck, dude, why didn't I see this? Craig, right, right. you're a smart son of a bitch. You know that? You're <laughs> smart as hell, man. <laughs> well, uh, Robert Renzetti and I love Speed Racer because, yeah. like, the thing that's amazing about Speed Racer, it was made in Japan as a cool action show for kids. And yeah. then when it got dubbed in the United States, it became a comedy unintentionally. Yeah. Just because the way it had to be written and they had to keep the characters talking and yeah. reiterating stuff. So Rob and I, when we were, you know, working on Two Stupid Dogs, I think they were playing it on MTV. We would watch it every night and laugh hysterically. And I actually based Mojo Jojo's dialogue on the English <laughs> dub of how Speed Racer was written. Fuck yeah, just, yeah, like just how characters had to keep saying stuff because there was more lip flap. They had to just keep talking. Have you you know, and I just thought that was amazing that a show that was made one way in one country with one tone completely changed into a different type of show, but is loved for a totally different reason. You know, I, I just told you you were smart as hell, man. You blew my fuck. There's another thing. I just like I, I love seeing all the parallels of stuff you guys love, stuff you guys appreciate. And then you bring it in, you put it in your art and it's your love letter to not only yeah, yeah. your show you're creating and the fan base you've, you, 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 you've garnered and, and put out there. But it, it's a love letter to these shows that that gave you that inspiration, man. That's such a phenomenal. You're paying it forward is essentially what I'm getting at. You're taking something that you love, putting it into something that you're, you're really passionate about and you're really trying to get off the ground and you made it your own man dude have yeah. you ever told that mojo jojo story i don't think i've ever i, I maybe some point before but yeah I, I don't know but yeah that's where it kind of came from yeah i try yeah. to watch every interview you guys do uh you guys do so i don't ask you the same questions because i don't right, right. keep this like a yes no answer type of thing anyway sure. I try to keep it free flowing organic um but yeah i don't ever remember hearing that and I, that's yeah. so fucking phenomenal man speed racer strikes again yeah. um Real Bryant episode, uh, Real Bryant Rod, excuse me. Favorite episode was the Beatles tribute. How much time was spent researching every reference and who was your favorite Beatle? Well, I, you know, the Beatles were probably the first band I ever really discovered. You know, my mom and my sister had all the albums. So when I was a kid, probably six or seven years old, I would just start listening to them. So I, you know, instantly fell in love. So, um, when I was writing that episode, I, you know, I, I, I can recall a lot of the lyrics, but yeah, I was just, I would be writing a scene with professor going, all right, I got to try to find some Beatles lyrics and would just look through lyric sheets and try to go like, oh, I can use this line from this and this line from this. And it was just sort of this, it was like solving a puzzle really, you know, just how do I put this together? And, um, and, you know, I know a lot about them so that some of that just, and I'm in a, I, I'm, I'm a very obsessive person. So when I get into something, I really get into it. Me too. So I, I knew a lot about the Beatles. And so I was just pulling a lot from my, my own memory, but bank. I think my favorite Beatle would have to be George mm -hmm. because George, not only do I love his music, but he also crossed over with Monty Python, mm -hmm. right? And like he, and so like for me, I discovered the Beatles and the Ruddles at the same time. So I don't know if you know about the Ruddles, but that was like Eric Idle's uh, parody of the Beatles that they did in the mid seventies. So I was, and I discovered, I think Monty Python, like Monty Python, the Holy Grail, the same time I discovered the Beatles. So in my mind, George Harrison is this like crossover of Monty Python, the Beatles, he also produced Life of Brian. He produced one of my favorite movies of all time, Time Bandits. You know, so I, he's like, uh, he's he's contributed to a lot of art I've loved since I was a kid. So I kind of 
tend and I also like his philosophy on, on the world and everything. So I, I tend to I love them all, but I tend to gravitate towards George Harrison. With that being said, you got a George Harrison impersonation. Can you do one or no? No, no, no. <laughs> um, and Walker 94 wants to know story ideas of what could have been of wander over yonder season three. Well, we had, we, you know, some people think we had a full season planned, but we didn't really have one planned. We just kind of had a proposal for it. But one of the initial ideas we had was, so at the end of wander over yonder, they defeat dominator, all the, people from the, the, the universe and Lord Hater, they're all on this secret planet together. And we're like, oh, well, let's start the show there. Like, we'll start season three on this lonely planet where all the characters are together and they need to get home. And they're like, well, how do they get home? And we had remembered in that, that same planet in a previous episode, there was like a flying clipper ship. So mm -hmm. we were like, oh, we'll have Wander painted up like the... Uh, like the electric mayhem does with Kermit and Fozzie's car in the Muppet yeah. movie. And they're like, let's all get on the flying ship together. And come on, Hater, you can join the ship too. And so it was just like, it was a way to get Hater and Peepers and all the characters from the universe in like one location while they were going to just be on like a road trip, like a kind of a magical mystery tour, Merry Pranksters, psychedelic space journey. And like Hater would have to be like rooming with Wander. So that was sort of the initial thing and then we were going to start to explore Hader's origin story a bit and where he really came from and why he hates Wander and everything but you know it just it it I feel bad because that show it never there's a very passionate fan base and I'm insanely proud of that show but it was never popular on Disney yeah. Disney never knew what to do with it it was a weird anomaly for them to produce a show like that it, you know they have a tendency to produce shows about kids. You know, yeah. they know how to sell shows about kids. So Wander just never really connected. And I honestly think we were lucky to even get a second season. So the idea of getting a third season was a real long shot. And so it just kind of never happened. They just said, no, we've got enough of them and yeah. we're going to move on. So I, I really don't think it'll ever get made because mm -hmm. the people that were championing Wander over Yonder they don't even work at Disney anymore. They're yeah. all gone. So it's like there's a whole new group of executives there who may or may not know we even made that thing, you know. Would you give me just one second? Yeah. All right. Uh, Wacko Jacko wants to know, at least I hope that's Jacko, favorite superhero? Flaming Carrot. <laughs> As we talked about Flaming Carrot. Nobody knows about it, but I, he's, he's my favorite. I've got them written. I'm also, here I'm, also I'm, I'm also, I have a big soft spot for underdog. That was yeah. probably the first cartoon character I ever discovered as yeah. a kid. I just love underdog. I like heroes who are not good at being heroes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of like, you know, that kind of vulnerability. Yeah. I like, I like underdog and I liked uh, Hong Kong Fui too. Oh yeah. 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 Kaiju King Lord wants to know if you could be a power ranger, what color would you be? I don't know enough about the Power Rangers to know what each one of those colors represent. It's sort of like uh, after my time. Yeah. I don't know. Silver Saturn was going to ask a question, but she answered it. It's about dialogue. Um, Shrinking Drink One wants to know, what are your thoughts on Jellystone? I haven't seen it yet. Um, it's done. It's really I've heard fun. really good things about it. Carl is incredible. Carl Greenblatt, who produces that show, is just an amazing 
uh, creative guy, hilarious. I, you know, I've loved all his shows. And so I keep meaning to like, oh, I got to watch that. I got to check it out because I'm hearing it's really, really funny. And I'm not surprised coming from Carl, but uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to checking it out. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a lot of fun. And getting to see TC Top Cat is one of my favorite cartoons of all time. So <laughs> right, see right. Him in, a, in, a, in a new era. Uh, it's always been fun. Razzle Pizzazz wants to know what animation outside of the West has influenced your shows. I think we talked uh, about it both anime. A little bit. I don't. I haven't. I don't know too much about anime. I haven't discovered that there was a show um, called Professor Balthazar that was made in the late '60s. That was a really big influence on uh, uh, Wander Over Yonder. But honestly because I have a little daughter, I'm watching a lot of preschool shows. Yeah. So there's a lot of really incredible international preschool shows. There's one from the BBC called Sarah and Duck. Mm-hmm. I love Peppa and Pig. Um, uh, Pocoyo from Spain was incredible. So like I, I'm watching a lot of preschool stuff right now. So that's what's coming to mind. But there's a show from Australia that's being made right now, a preschool show called Bluey. That okay. is one of the best cartoon tv shows made right now i like it doesn't matter that it's targeted towards preschool audience it's such a funny heartwarming story about families and the love of families and the humor of families and it's it's you know it's about a family of blue healer dogs you know they're anthropomorphic dog people who live in houses but it's incredible it's just a great great show and my daughter and i love watching it and it's from Australia, and it's just it's it's great. Beautiful. I wrote that one down too, man. I'm getting a lot of uh, a lot of recommendations here today, and I love it. Um, <clears throat> Franco wants to know what do you think makes a good character design? Um, anything that communicates the personality of the character. Beautiful. Right. You need to be able to look at them and know who they are based on what they look like and their expressions and their color and everything. They should tell you who they are just by looking at them. Beautiful. Uh, elaborate Sun Mall wants to know, uh, what would you say are some of your biggest artistic influences when creating your shows? I know you mentioned, uh, you know, him just a minute ago, but do you have any other big, huge influences? Um, Jim Henson's a huge, huge influence for me overall, just in the work he's created and the joy and the creativity and imagination he's brought into the world. So he's, he's a big, uh, inspiration for me. There's a, a French com- com- comedy director uh, named Jacques Tati, who I love his films. He's a very visual storyteller. Uh, he made films uh, throughout the 50s and 60s. He made six films. And um, the Powerpuff Girls actually live in the house from one of his films, Mon Uncle. Okay. So, like, I, Jacques Tati is a big influence. But, you know, comic strip artist uh, Charles Schultz. Yes. Um, George Harriman, who did Crazy Cat. You know, I'm just a kind of a big fan of that. But Jim Henson's probably my uh, big creative influence on me personally. Yeah. And uh, like I said, I'm a huge Ninja Turtle fan. He's the whole reason that I got into pop culture, comic Hmm. books and all of that stuff with that first Ninja Turtle movie. His studios did the for that suit and everything. So, yeah, yeah. 100% man, Jim Henson. Mm -hmm. Uh, Reborder, Reborder. I don't know how to say I'm saying, so I apologize. Uh, wants to know what bands inspired Kid Cosmic soundtrack? Um, I was looking at a lot of garage bands. There's kind of this resurgence with garage bands. So bands like VOCs, Ty Siegel, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Um, just kind of <laughs> looking at that uh, kind of resurgence of garage band music. Yeah. Um, 
that we fit. And like, we always, I used to say like, Kid Cosmic and his the local heroes are sort of like a punk rock superhero team, meaning they're really rough around the edges. They they don't have a lot of skill, but they have the passion and drive to try to do it. So they yeah. sort of have this kind of punk rock aesthetic as far as just you know their determination to be heroes. And I felt that that sort of music really supported that idea. Um, so yeah, that was kind of inspiration. They're the grunge of superheroes right now. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, more and more garage rock, more more that like late late 60s, early 70s kind of garage bands. Uh, one is a bird, OTGW wants to know, do you have a favorite line from any of your shows? There's one line in episode five of Kid Cosmic that makes me laugh every time I hear it. There's a scene where all the lights go off and Tuna Sandwich, the cat, starts meowing. And kid goes, tuna sandwich senses danger. And like, as a series of words, it makes no sense. But in the context of the show, you're like, yeah, of course, tuna sandwich senses danger. And so I've always, like, every time I hear it, I think I wrote it, maybe. And just every time I hear it, it makes me laugh. Because it's such a weird series of words together. Tuna sandwich has got a spidey sense. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> this one's just to satisfy my own curiosity. Because we talked about him a little bit before we started. Um, and like I said, I can never talk to Robert enough. Um, what's your favorite Robert Alvarez story, your favorite Robert Alvarez memory from working with him for so long? I, you know, I don't know if there's a specific memory. I think it was just, I really loved the fact that I got to work with somebody who has been in the industry that long. I have so much respect for, you know, that generation of artists because they didn't really, you know, they were, they were kind of tradesmen who worked in this industry. They never really got the, the attention. They weren't, you know, celebrating, you know, animation artists at that period weren't um, kind of given that attention. And I just loved the fact that, he welcomed us in like there's a you know animation artists can get cynical and like get burnt out about the industry and robert has always been positive and a fan and likes to just make great stuff and he's such a good person and i just you know i always wanted to have him as part of my shows and he continued to like keep working with the next generation you know he was a big part of regular show with jg you know he just I love the fact that he never got bitter or cynical about the industry, even though he worked it, you know, not the most ideal times, you know, yeah. I also love the fact that he worked on yellow submarine, you know, <laughs> and for years he kept saying like, Oh, I've got tons of animation art and me and Tim Walker used to dumpster dive. And I'm like, I want to see that stuff. I want to see it. And then, you know, now he's putting that stuff up on Facebook. So finally I'm getting to see his collection, but yeah, I, I, I learned so much from Robert and I loved working with him. And I just, I, I, I love that. Like each younger generation is, is welcomed by him. And, you know, he wants to keep doing new things. And I, I, I love that about it. Yeah. Like I said, man, that man is a national treasure and I'm mm -hmm. so glad I got to talk to him. Mm -hmm. um, and also, he just knows the business, right? It's just like, it, there, there's something about just somebody who's been in the trenches and knows how it really works, you know, to kind of yeah. get you thinking straight about, this is a job, you know, I talked to him once for the podcast and then, uh, 
I, I talked to him for a, a, a secret, super secret squirrel project I'm working on. Um, and that one won't be released at all. That was just me chatting for like two hours. And it went like that. Just all the knowledge and all the stuff that he's worked on. And what I, what I love about him is he's just got like, I don't give a shit attitude about it. And he just tells you how it is. He doesn't sugarcoat shit. And I just, I I love that about people when they can just cut the fat and just get straight into it. Yeah. Um, Giddy Gus wants to know, uh, what were some of the biggest inspirations on Kid Cosmic besides Tintin? Mm, There was um, some European comics. There's a French graphic novelist named Christophe Blaine Mm-hmm. who we were looking at uh, just as far as like the way he handles backgrounds and drawing style. Um, uh, Peanuts, you know, Charles Schultz definitely was a inspiration drawing wise uh, for design wise on the show. Um, but yeah, that's some of it, you know, okay. just more print cartoonists and stuff were a visual inspiration for the show. Got you. Uh, and speaking of Charles Schultz. Uh... And also um, not, um, it wasn't a visual inspiration, but movies like E.T., you know, uh, were a huge, had a huge impact where you can tell real stories to kids that have, you know, meaning, uh, you know, Elliot, it has meaning. And, you know, Elliot doesn't have a dad and his parents are divorced and his mom gets upset and he's, he was lost. There's a vulnerability to them. And, you know, there's that's a heavy movie, but kids can handle that type of story. And so I felt, you know, my father passed away when I was seven years old. So I resonated with those types of movies and those types of stories. And I knew kids could handle that kind of heavier story. And so when we were developing Kid Cosmic, I'm like, kid needs to kind of go through some stuff. He, you know, he needs to show vulnerability and emotion, right? It can't just be surface, you know, fun with superpowers, right? Yeah. So that, that was a big inspiration as well is, is you know, E.T. for sure. Beautiful. And we talked briefly about uh, Charles Schultz and it came up in my Chris Battle episode. Uh, We both had the same Peanuts books because we both love the Peanuts. Um, But I always reach out to to some of the guys and gals you've worked with and ask if they could submit a question or want me to bring up something. And Chris wants to know if you remember the uh, at the time with the N64, the Mario Kart races that they would have during lunch and stuff. Oh, yeah. You, you wouldn't be playing because you were super, super busy. But yeah. do you remember anything specific about uh, the Mario Kart races? Well, it was just, I mean, the, the where we had, you know, we had our studio where we were working and there was a giant U-shaped leather couch and a huge TV. And every day at lunch, you know, all the you know board artists, Dave Smith was probably the leader of that pack yeah. who was just playing, you know, during lunch or whatever. And it was just sort of the ongoing thing that was happening every day. You know, Dave Smith was there. Uh, Andy Bialk was playing a lot. And, you know, I think Chris was probably playing and Yeah. I, but you know what? It created this really great energy. You know, there was sort of fun being on and related to 64. And I don't know, Chris brought this up, but there was a period during power puff where we were all playing legend of Zelda <laughs> at home. Right. I think it was Ocarina of time. We were all, is that the one? No, whatever the Zelda 64 was, I forget what the first one was, but we were all obsessively playing it. Everyone had a 64 at home. We were all playing it. And there was, came a certain point where boards were getting late or models were getting <laughs> late. And I remember we had to have this meeting where Gendy and I had to sit down with everybody and I'm like, who's done with Zelda? 
How far do you have? Do you think you need another day or two? And Gendy's like, it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter. Because he wasn't playing it. And I was playing it. And it was like, look, they're not going to stop. But we just kind of got to figure out where everybody is and how quickly they can finish. And can we help you? Can we give you any tips or tricks to kind of get through this quicker? You know, so that was like, that was the bigger 64 story I remember. It was like, and I was part of it as well because yeah. <laughs> I got sucked into it. But yeah, that was that was fun. Oh, but we good. all finished it. We all got through it. That's good, man. Uh, Rock and Pins wants to know, are you a fan of Fleischer Studios? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Anthony, that D- was a big inspiration for Wander as well, too. Just that yeah. kind of rubber hosey, yeah, animation. Okay. Inflation. Um, Anthony DiPaolo too wants to know: Have you considered doing another two D hand drawn animation project? Um, you mean uh, assuming well, you pencil to paper and well, of, you uh, know, even though we're even though a show like Wander and Kid are done in harmony that's still based on drawings right mm-hmm. it's still like the 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 builds that we do are drawings like yeah. you know i'll draw the you know we'll do the turnarounds by hand all the models are drawn by hand and then they're brought into harmony and turned into rigs but and you know all the bg layouts are drawn by hand yes. and then painted digitally so that you know um, th- there still is a 2d component to those shows even though it's animated in uh harmony um but there's just there's so many benefits to working in harmony Mm -hmm. um you know a lot of times you know when you would get work prints or retakes back from a show you would sometimes have to call notes like this is totally drawn off model yeah this and then you would have to call retakes to redraw the scene but when you're working in harmony that never becomes an issue Mm -hmm. like because they're always working with the same assets so it's always going to look consistent so yeah, I probably, I don't see me going back to hand-drawn. And also, a lot of studios today are really pushing for 3D. You know, like kids today look at hand-drawn stuff and they see it as old. Yeah. You know, and that's sort of the reality. There's so much CG and 3D animation out there that a 2D thing to a kid looks like a 1920s cartoon did to me. You know, it's like, it's oldsy timesy. Yeah. I got you. Um, I know we've hit that nine o'clock time. How much? How, how much longer do you think you got? I can. I can ask a few. Get a few more questions here. Okay. Cool. 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 Uh, John Matsu wants to know. This is an interesting question. Before Fosters was established, what happened to imaginary friends after their creators gave them up? Well, I don't know. Like th- that's implying a world existing outside of the creation of this show. Yeah. Um, and we didn't really come up with things like that if it wasn't relevant to the show. I remember once I had a note, uh, we had a Foster's episode where a seeing eye friend had lost uh, his kid. Uh, he had a kid who, was, who couldn't see. And so his job was to be the seeing eye friend. And one of the notes we got was, well, does this mean that all kids who are blind have seeing eye friends? And I was like, well, yeah, maybe, but... <laughs> we're not telling their story right now. So it's not really relevant to this particular imaginary friend's story. It's an interesting note. It's an interesting notion, but because it's not part of the show, I'm not really thinking about that. Like what happened to imaginary friends prior to Foster's existing, you know? Uh, Mr. Steven Landis wants to know what's your favorite color. 
probably charcoal gray. Charcoal gray? That's a good guess. Yes. <laughs> Neutral, yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, you mentioned something earlier about putting on socks. Like, I don't feel like that. Like that. I used to spend a lot of times in the morning going, well, what shirt do I want to wear? What color? You know, colors would bother me. Yeah. Right? I'm like, oh, I don't want to wear this. I don't want to wear this color. It's, it's making me feel weird. So I just kind of eventually just found a uniform of just something neutral that I felt comfortable in. So I don't have to think about clothes every day. It just saved me a lot of time. It's like Stanley going to the all khaki suit or Albert Einstein wearing the same thing. Cause yeah, you waste just, brain power on thinking. Yes, exactly. I didn't want to waste time thinking. So a certain few years ago, and my uncle did that when I was growing up, he had the same uniform he wore every day. And I was like, that's smart. You don't want to waste your time thinking about this. Uh, I, one Levi Church wants to know, is there a particular episode from all of your shows? And you don't have to pick all of your shows, but is there one specific episode that you think sticks out that you're the most proud of? Well, I wouldn't say I'm most proud of, but there's ones that are iconic. Like for Powerpuff, I think Bubble Vicious is really iconic for what the, the show is about. Um, for Fosters, uh, I really love Squeeze the Day, mm -hmm. where Mac and Blue are just in the house by themselves. Um uh, for kid, I think episode five, um, uh, where the death, demon death dogs are in the diner, I think is sums up the essence of the show. And I'm trying to think for Wander, what you know, I really love the musical. I really, uh, My Fair Haiti. I, I really love the cartoon. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm just, I, I can't think of a, a Wander episode that's like the definitive one. I, I love all of them. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's kind of hard to choose. It's like picking your favorite kid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Because they're all, there's like, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, well, that Powerpuff's great and that one's great and that Foster's is great, you know. Uh, it's Gokai Orange, I think is the name. Uh, I'd love to hear about your, man, I'm a butcher the shit out of this. Toku, Tokusatsu influences. I heard about Mojo Jojo's helmet again. Uh, origin coming from the cage star and how you had a toy of him growing up yeah well i didn't know anything about those shows growing up right so when i was a kid i i couldn't see those types of live action japanese yeah. superhero shows right my only connection to him there was a toy story toy store called toys international that would sell um, Japanese Chogokin toys. And so every now and then I would get to go to this special store and like my grandmother would buy me a Chogokin. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what the shows were. I just saw these cool die-cast metal superhero figures and go, I want that guy. Mm -hmm. So I bought Kajastar. Um, I bought another one from a show called Zubat. But I didn't know what the shows were until like I was an adult in college and I would go to comic conventions and there'd be those guys selling the VHS tapes yeah. of like bootleg shows. And so I'm like, Oh, it's Hey, crazy. this is that toy I had yeah. when I was a kid. And then I would discover them. So my connection to them was really just about the Chogokin toys that I had. Beautiful. Uh, a snowflake owl wants to know what's professor Utonian's first name. We, we never gave him one. Beautiful. I like yeah. that. Same thing yeah. with the Ed boys. Everybody wants yeah. to know what's under Double D's hat, but nobody knows because they yeah. don't want to keep that mystery. Yeah. Um, uh, Mercenary Gumbo wants to know, what was your favorite storyline to write regarding him from Powerpuff Girls? Mm. Wow. I don't know. It's a hard one. Speed Demon is pretty heavy. 
Charlie yeah. Beam wrote Speed Demon, and that's a pretty dark episode uh, for that show. Um, but um, maybe Octi Evil was a kind of that was the first one he was in, and that was kind of really iconic about him possessing her stuffed animal. Yeah. But him was a tricky character to write because he was originally conceived of as the devil. Mm-hmm. And then early on, they were like, you cannot call him. He had horns and a spiked tail, and he was the devil. And like originally, they were like, you cannot call him the devil. You can't say that. We cannot have any kind of religion or anything like that anywhere near these shows. So we had to pull him back. So, and he was always a character like you could. I always imagined him as like Q from Star Trek. Like he was really powerful and he was just there to kind of screw with the girls. Like he yeah. could have done these evil things, but they were, he was, it was fun to mess with them, you know? Uh, I, I, I really enjoy, <laughs> but uh, so two more and then uh, we'll wrap it up. Um, do Leaf Beach wants to know, are any characters from Foster's represent people in your life? Um, Frankie is kind of based on my wife, Lauren Faust. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of her personality. Um, uh, so th- that, um, she's that Mac, Mac and blue sort of represent me when I was a kid, like blue was like me before my father passed away. And Mac was who I became after my father passed away. So he was a bit like me and I'm a, I was a bit like kid from kid cosmic. That's sort of, I was really intense and really hyper and really obsessive as a kid. Uh, so definitely kid cosmic. I'm pulling from my own experiences for, yeah. for him as well. Yeah. Beautiful. And last one, just something. He said, is there any video games, books, or comics that you would love to adapt into a TV show? There was a very short period of time where Warner Brothers, Sam Register, Warner Brothers Animation was talking to me about adapting Buckaroo Banzai for animation for Adult really? Swim. Buckaroo Banzai is like one of my all-time favorite, favorite movies. And I had an idea of how to adapt it for animation and I pitched it to him. And what was great about when I pitched it to him, uh, my take on it, he said, what's funny is your take on it was almost the identical take that the original writer and director had about adapting. And so I was like, oh, right. I'm in the, I'm like, I'm in the right headspace for how to adapt Buckaroo Banzai. But there's a whole kind of thing with the rights, right? Years ago, Kevin Smith was going to adapt uh, if a version of it. And then the, the ownership of who owns the characters and the rights, it's just kind of mired in kind of this legal battle and it's never really been able to get resurrected. But that was sort of a, a project I was like oh, close to my heart. And I was like, oh, I want to do the, the animated Buckaroo Banzai. Yeah, I, I was I was wondering because as soon as you said that, I'm like, man, I wonder if Kevin Smith let that one go, and then I didn't realize the rights. No, it, it, they, the he got part. into the same, you know, because I had the same experience. Like, hey, let's do it, and then Warner Brothers was like, we can't figure out who owns this. Yeah, beautiful man. Uh, like I said, real quick for fans, uh, we couldn't get to all your questions. I have never had, excuse me, I have never had this many questions asked for any guest. Right. Just oh, on God. Twitter alone was over 110, 115 questions just on Twitter alone. Um, so fans, if you didn't get to them, I'm pretty sure Craig will come on way down the road and we can talk about those when we talk about them, but nonetheless, um, this is always my favorite part because I get to give you guys thanks right before we get off, you know, without people like you with people like Gendy and David, uh, Feist from Cowan Chicken and Danny Antonucci and, and, and 
everybody that I'm going to forget because there's just so many people. I, without people like you building the foundation for Cartoon Network, we don't get the shows that we've had in the mid-2000s, late 2000s, what we're getting now. You guys set a pace and you guys did something that was so special that resonated with millions of kids at that time. And these kids... Now, I don't want to say they all look like me, but they're grown up like me, right? So we've mm -hmm. taken this love from something that we've had at such a young age, and we've translated it into teenage years and adult years. And then, you know, we're going to, especially for me, I'm going to pass this down to my sons, right? Mm -hmm. What you guys did was so special, and you guys changed so many lives. Um, and I can't thank you, uh, one, enough for coming on this show, because it meant the world to me. It really did. Um, and I can't thank you enough for everything that you've done in your career, man. Like I said, without you, we're not going to get the the next generation of animators that we're going to get, man. Without you and people like you, we don't get the shows that we're going to get. So thank you for everything you've done, man. I really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. And also, thank you for watching. Because without people like you watching the work that we do, I wouldn't be able to continue to do what I do. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship. It's a, you know, I need the viewers and I appreciate that you love my work and, and were inspired by it. But that's, that's why I got into it because I like the stuff that was made before me. I like the generation of stuff that, that I grew up watching and when I love this so much, I want to do that for a living. And so we just keep moving this kind of creative thing forward and keep inspiring each other. And it's great. So I appreciate it. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. I really I'm enjoyed talking with you. I'm glad you enjoyed it, man. Don't yeah. forget Kid Cosmic season two drops September 7th. Where yeah. can people find you if they want to find out where you're working at? Uh, I'm on Twitter, um, Crack McCragan at Twitter, and I am CMCC Cartoons on Instagram. Um, so that's where my socials are. I, I, I'm, I'm a 50 year old man and I'm not really up to speed on getting on the social medias. So I, 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 ha I don't post a lot, but you know, I, I realize that that's kind of a new world. I kind of got to get into, but, um, but yeah, but that's where you can find my stuff and Kid Cosmic on Netflix. Just look at it this way, man. It's quality over quantity, right? You don't post yeah. a lot, but what you are putting out is fucking vital, right? Yeah. So like yeah. I said, man, he's been Craig. I've been Julian. This has been the What's in My Head podcast, and this has been another piece of your childhood. Good night. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks again for checking out the What's in My Head podcast. If you're digging what you're hearing, leave us a five-star rating. That will help other fans of animation and pop culture find the show. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button, tell a friend, and I'll see you guys and gals next week. Good night.